now that people are actually emerging from their holes, I'm starting to see the same kind of self-interested attitude that, that has been so disappointing over, in recent years. And so I'm, I'm a little bit, I'm a little worried. That was author Alia Voltz. I'm Jeff, and this is Storied San Francisco. Happy 415 Day, y'all. In this episode, Alia picks up where she left off in part one, with stories of when she was a kid joining her mom when her mom made the rounds selling pot brownies in San Francisco. The freewheeling days of the late 70s gave way to illness, pain, and death when AIDS hit the city, in the gay community in particular. Leaving the days Alia wrote about in Home Baked Behind, she talks about travels to Europe, where she began writing, and South America, which was cut short when her mom got sick. But spending time with her mom led to recording oral histories, and that eventually led to Alia's book, which comes out in paperback next week. She shares the very San Francisco story of her wedding with Kevin Hunsinger, whom you might remember from season two of this podcast. And she ends this episode with her thoughts and hopes for what's next in her hometown of San Francisco. Here's Alia. Okay, my first memory is of splashing in a puddle. In the, it must have been outside the warehouse. It was in the mission. And I remember very clearly what socks I was wearing. I had like striped tights and Chinese brocade shoes that you could get in Chinatown. And I was splashing in a puddle and my mom said, don't play in that. It might be pee. Yeah. And that's it. That is, I mean, that's like a... First memory. Other other cities, <laughs> but also a very specific San Francisco. Like. Yeah. And it was... Um, it's our version of Don't Eat the Yellow Snow, kind of, right? <laughs> yeah. And and it, it, it stuck with me, though, in a way. So I... The way that I, the way that I spent my earliest years um, was also going out with my mom right. on brownie runs. Right. So she would put me in the stroller and she would load the stroller up with cannabis brownies and take me with her into the Castro. And this is pre-AIDS Castro. So mm-hmm. it was wall-to-wall guys. Mm-hmm. And um, and I also have these early flashes of memory of being fond over and, mm-hmm. you know, um, this really loving celebratory vibe um, this genderless vibe as there's drag queens out and and um, and and everything in between. We we went to Sylvester's house all the time, um, and so it was this really um, you know, glittery, colorful, creative feeling. And I felt so much a part of the city. I, I felt mm. embedded, mm-hmm. and so I think that one of those one of the reasons that memory was so shocking that it it stuck in in my mind was like. How could something that is just part of me be bad that I need to avoid right. it, that I can't play in? Of course I can play in it. It's my, it's my world. I mean, mm-hmm. I just, I felt so strongly associated with my environment. And in some ways I think I, I still do. And, and maybe that's how we all are with our hometowns. It feels like an, an extension I of was personality. Say, obviously formative. Yeah. Um, you know, part of, part of who you are today and you have been your your whole life that's I mean that's a that's a strong impression yeah I I would say and not um not a common one right not a lot of people have that right experience do you want to because um you you do spend a a good amount of time of it in the book do you want to talk about 
specifically your experiences. You were pretty young, but with AIDS. Oh, um, sure. So having, having grown up very much at my mom's side while she was doing her, her deals, um, many of her customers over the years were also close family friends. And so I had a lot of surrogate uncles and aunties and m the, the majority of these people were with, from within the LGBTQ plus community. It, it was really homey to me and, um, and where I felt safe, where I felt loved, right? And so AIDS began to emerge right at the beginning of the 80s. I, I think my mom's first customer died in 82 that, that I was able to trace. Mm -hmm. um, and then people started getting sick and dying. And so I'm four, five, six, seven years old, coming with my mom. At that time, we'd, we'd moved out of the city temporarily, but she was coming down to, to sell brownies. And I, and I often came with her and would see people change so dramatically from one visit to the next. Right. And then they started disappearing, you know. Yeah. And um, when you're a kid, I mean, it's certainly traumatic, but when you're a kid, you also just absorb things. Right. Um, and I came from such a, in a way, such a, like an Alice in Wonderland kind of an environment mm -hmm. where things were always changing and personalities were changing and people were changing. And so there was a way that I absorbed it at the time. Um, as I got older and understood what was happening, there was a more intense confrontation. We started losing people that I knew and cared about. Mm -hmm. And um, I have really intense memories from being like nine, 10 years old, and going with my mom on deliveries into homes where people were basically on death's door. Um, and there, there's, there's, definitely, there's definitely a lot of grief and trauma around that. I also think, um, I also think often about how much I learned and how fortunate I was to learn about bravery and, and compassion mm -hmm. at a young age is there's nothing braver than young people caring for each other as they're dying. I mean, it, it was right. just, it was just an extraordinary, it was, there was an extraordinary amount of love, extraordinary amount of bravery and courage. And the, and the government was just doing nothing. In and the there were no reason, there was yeah. no vaccine, there were right. no resources. Mm -hmm. Uh, or very few resources, mm -hmm. and um, so it was the, the the community really taking care of its own. And your mom, in a sense, was was part of that. Sure, right? Like your, um, she was providing. I don't want to say a service. She was definitely providing no. a, a product, a service, <laughs> a product. For, yeah. For, um, but uh, in a sense, um, adding to that compassion and and and. Um, sense of hospice and sure i mean i think it was a, it was a time when everyone here was doing what they could right, right? right. so people were volunteering for buddy problem buddy programs to take to take people to the to their hospital visits mm -hmm. or meals on wheels to deliver food mm -hmm. or whatever you could do you did mm -hmm. well this was really when medical cannabis emerged mm -hmm. and so my book is largely about how medical cannabis was born out of this community. Right. In the 70s, my mom was d 
distributing these brownies and they they were a party drug it was all for fun it was all for creativity and and yeah, hi man right 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 i mean and people were really into it then these were sure. disco days sure. so when that changed what my mom and others of her ilk so she was really close with dennis perone and brownie mary was doing this of course and um so what she and other cannabis providers caught on to pretty quickly was that cannabis helped with some of the common symptoms. I mean, they helped with the wasting syndrome, which was one of the biggest killers. Uh, it helped with the terrible nausea, the crippling depression, the insomnia, the pain, um, and various other things that people still use it to, to treat today, right? And, you know, this was in no way medically sanctioned. It was, a, it was an awareness that came out of the community itself. Mm -hmm. This helps nausea, let's provide it. Right. We, there's no there's no effective medicine for this, and it worked better than any of the antiemetics on the market produced by pharma. So naturally, this was the direction that it went in. And at, at that time, my mom started doing a lot more home deliveries. Mm, right. Uh, instead of, you know, there were no more routes to businesses right. really. Uh, people would come over to our house, but it was also a lot of home deliveries to people who were too sick to go out. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that is a service. I love it. Um, in my more hopeful moments now and over the last year, I'm like, uh, there are similarities, right? Um, lack of government response or yeah. ineptitude of government response yeah. and real pain in real communities. And again, in my more kind of optimistic moments like the things I, I try to latch onto this stuff but like the thing the things that people are doing for each other mm -hmm. I, I see a little bit of it here and there um, I've seen it in my personal life and it's like but this was different this was on a scale um, well it was just different it, similarities but differences and there were a, th yeah there were a lot of similarities the most crucial differences of course were were that around AIDS there was a lot of victim blaming stigmatization oh for sure. yeah and yeah. It, and this I mean, the government response was not entirely different. Right. Reagan uh, refused to say the word AIDS for the first. Mm -hmm. He first said it in 1985. It started killing people in 1981. Mm -hmm. uh, his first speech about AIDS was not until 1987, and he didn't he didn't speak about LGBTQ people once in that mm -hmm. speech, unless to ex except for there was a mention of someone who's closeted and gets their wife sick. Oh, right. So right, so it was so how really, it affects street people. Ooh, in other words. Yeah. yeah, I mean it was really bad, and he had Pat Buchanan was his press secretary. Oh, that makes secretary. all the sense in the world. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, <laughs> the no, Trump administration did not invent ineptitude. Speaks was the press secretary, but Pat Buchanan. I'm trying to remember what his role is. Anyway, he was high up in government, yeah. and so yeah, I mean the the evangelical, um, uh, homophobic, you know, bigoted angle was really strong and it had a lot to do with how long this went on. Mm -hmm. uh, there was not an effective treatment for AIDS related symptoms until 1996. 96, that, yeah. 96, that's yeah. 15 years. Yeah. And people were just dying. Yeah. It, it, you know, it was, it was awful. It was very hard to get national attention because there was this narrative that you, you get AIDS if you do bad things. Right, right. And so that was really powerful and awful. Or if you are bad. Yeah. Well, it, it, you know, it was, it was the queers and it was, dr it was IV drug, drug users. Right, right, right. 
Was it the Bay Area Reporter, the newspaper that later, much later, had the headline "No that No No Bits"? This week, yeah, No Bits. That yeah, yeah, that is, in addition to stories, allegories that I've heard from folks who were there, had like that is impressive. Um, mm-hmm. Just that it had to get to that point. Can we talk? Start the talk of your life after the end of the book. Sure. <laughs> <What> <laughs> um, Maybe if your mom, your mom wrote the the book of your life. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's see. So it, it gets it gets patchy after a while. Okay. Um, let's see. I did leave the city. I have to think now. I left the city in 2000. Okay. And we had lived we had lived in Sonoma County and then back. We lived in Mendocino County and then back. So right. different areas of Northern California at different times. Mm-hmm. But I left the country in 2000 and um, traveled in in I li- I was in Spain for a year after that and then different parts of Europe just kind of wandering around broke and doing that thing by yourself by, I was by myself okay yeah awesome. uh, I, I walked the Camino de Santiago uh, which is a, a 790 kilometer pilgrimage oh, yeah. across Spain just a um, walk in the park yeah <laughs> I wow. felt like I felt like a walk and it was spontaneous <laughs> I was just in the area okay and I didn't even have hiking shoes mm-hmm. um, so I had to kind of pick stuff and I had no money and I had to kind of gather resources along the way um, but that was amazing of course it was a, a very transformational period and that was really when I started writing and you're um, in your kind of mid or early early 20 at that point early 20s, early 20s okay. yeah um, maybe 22 I think and I started writing because I was traveling alone and got into the habit for the first and really last time in my life of keeping a, a journal. I'm okay. not a diary person. Okay. Um, I wish I was because I could draw on it now, but right. <laughs> but it's just never been my thing. But I got into the habit of it then, and I found that I really liked how writing changed the way I understood the world and mm. the way I experienced things on a sensory level. It mm. made things more vivid for me okay. um, to write about them. So after that, I went to college uh for a little while i went into a writing program eventually dropped out of that to go to cuba where i went to the university of havana for a year okay um lived in different parts of south america (laughs) but yeah i spent i spent uh, a good two three years i guess in different parts of latin america and um was not intending to come back but then my mom got sick okay so she had she had hepatitis C, still does. It doesn't go away, right. but it was it was active and she was in danger at that point. So she got into an experimental uh, drug program. Um, was she still up here? She no, or? she was living in Mexico. Okay, actually at the time, okay. uh, but she needed to move to LA to g- get into this program, mm-hmm. and she was she was desperate. She was pretty sick. Okay. And um, it just, it was not a, at the time it had a 40% success rate. So it was pretty hairy. Yeah. So I came from Cuba directly to to Mexico to gather her and bring her to LA, in fact, um, where she went on this program. And it was while she was sick that I started recording the stories that became the backbone of Home Baked. Okay. 
my original reason for doing the recordings was that I, I was looking at my mom's mortality and I and some of these stories I just absolutely love and had been hearing my whole life and could request them like a jukebox, yes. right? So I started requesting my favorites and recording them thinking I'll want to hear them in her voice mm, right. someday if I lose her. When I right, lose her, it's right, inevitable right. someday. Um, but then the stories raised questions. Mm. And I would ask questions and she might say, you should talk to Barb about that or you should ask your dad. So from there, it spread exponentially, and I started gathering these interviews. By the time, uh, by the time I was done, I'd interviewed 65 people, I think, wow. ranging from, you know, insiders within the business to customers to police officers. When in the process did you realize this could be a book, or should should? Could, I'm should. yeah, <laughs> I'm not entirely sure. I, I once I started spreading the interviews out and and following that thread i had the sense that i was researching a book but i didn't know what it was going to look like and for a long time i didn't know what it was going to look like i actually shopped a version of this book as an oral history in 2009 and it didn't sell it was just rejected by every house in new york okay and um, at the time um, a lot of editors said that cannabis was too niche of a subject okay uh <laughs> that it, it it wouldn't interest a broad enough demographic sure boy has that changed yeah uh also also i i really i'm glad that it didn't get published then because it's a much better book now uh, right. i hadn't found the right shape for it mm -hmm. so there was a combination of factors but when i went out with it in 2018 the response from publishing was completely different yeah so were you so then so then oral history pitched in 09 18 it's pitched as a book as a yeah a researched memoir a researched yeah. memoir how much of it had been written by the time point? i sold it yeah a uh, little less than half but my my proposal included one chapter okay and because it's not a small book. It's no, it, <laughs> it got big. It's almost exactly 420 pages. Oh. We missed it by four pages. Can you do like a third epilogue or something? I know, right? <laughs> well, <laughs> by the time I noticed that. Or like raise the font like, a little bit. I know. I know. We missed such a, we missed such pages, a good Easter egg with that. Yeah. <laughs> so for listeners, just to set the stage, um, Alia's life partner, Fair to say, husband. If fair All to say, fair to say, husband. I'm, I meant fair to say, life partner, <laughs> but also husband, because um, that is a fact. Right. Um, is Kevin Hunsinger, who who was on the podcast a couple years ago? Um, can we hear the story of y'all's wedding? Oh sure, yeah. So um, and like what year? And, and uh huh. If you don't mind. Yeah, it and it actually ties in because I was I I had I had the last time I moved back here, I came out for a boyfriend who was not worth it. That's classic. Mm -hmm. But, um, and then I kind of got stuck mm. because I didn't have, I didn't have the funds together to leave. And, mm. and, uh, and I was, I was scraping money together. I was aiming for Brazil when I met Kevin and, um, and we connected really strongly, you know, had a wonderful romantic process <laughs> sure. I don't know it, which and it remains wonderful and romantic and that was awesome. we met in 2007 I think okay and and fell in love and he's he was at the time one of the co-owners of Green Apple Books and could not 
extricate himself easily mm-hmm. from the business. So I ended up staying and, and canceling my plans to leave, uh, which is part of why I'm still itching and itching and itching to go. Decided to get married, which was something I never wanted to do, never thought I would do. But we were so, so much enjoying ourselves that we wanted... we. I would say that we got mar- got married in a way to have a party, like right. as a as a reason to celebrate, right? right? right, right. Um, as a reason to celebrate being in love, and and he's such a San Francisco character, and I'm so baked into the city that we both brought we both brought these entire groups of creatives like with the, us, kind sorry, of. Sorry, I like the pun baked in. I I know. <laughs> It's you know they're everywhere. I tr- yeah. I I avoid them sometimes. I yeah. indulge sometimes. Um, but anyway, so so we got married on April Fool's Day. Uh, easy date to remember. Happy uh, anniversary. Couple of fools in love. Thank you. Thank you. We got married at City Hall, and then we had a, our party at Jelly's four days later, which was on a Saturday, and it, you know it was a couple hundred people, and we had two bands play and um sarah who was the chef at the front porch at the time did the food and it just it was really it was really fun and a very san francisco thing well ron turner and his wife carol silverman ron is of course of last gas fame and also a former guest on this show as well yeah so he was somebody i knew through kevin okay ron and carol and just adored them. I mean, they're the most San Francisco people that San Francisco has ever San Francisco'd. So yeah, correct. Right. <laughs> so they came, and uh, Carol took one look at my mom and said, "Merity." Whoa. <laughs> and as it turned out, they had been in a mothers group together, and this was this was in 1977 while they were both pregnant, and they were in a, a group that was getting together on a weekly basis to talk about alternative methods of, of mothering because mm. people were really exploring different ideas in child rearing at Experiment. the time. Experimenting. Really experimenting. Yeah. And they had become close friends and it turns out that the warehouse was just a couple of blocks from Last Gasp and that Ron and Carol and my folks all knew each other and hung out together and I had played with their kid and we had no idea. I'd been hanging out with Ron and Carol through Kevin. Right, not knowing. Having no idea. That, that there was this connection. So that was a lot of fun. Um, but yeah, we just, we just had, a, we had a beautiful time at Jelly's, which is no longer. No longer with us. Yeah. yeah. And then we had our after, after party in the back room at Tosca, yes. which is also no longer with us. Right. Right. And, so, uh, so special. Yeah. Sean, Sean Penn tried to get in and was denied. Fuck yeah. Fuck that guy. <laughs> which, We're having a wedding Which back is a here. story that, Je- that Jeanette loves to tell. She, she just thought that was so funny. Yeah. <laughs> well, if Ron Turner is the San Francisco-iest San Francisco that ever San Francisco, I think y'all's wedding might be the San Francisco-iest wedding <laughs> that ever San Francisco. I'll take it. Okay. I mean, we didn't do it on Mount Tam. I think we've kind of got a lot of that stuff that I wanted to get. Thank you. Um, do you care to speak to... I guess the question would be, what are your hopes for... The next iteration of San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Well, it's been really interesting uh, on so many levels coming through this era. I think initially we saw the community kind of banding together. And there's been a sense that will come out of this different uh, changed from how we went into it. 
now that people are actually emerging from their holes, I'm starting to see the same kind of self-interested attitude that that has been so disappointing over in recent years. And so I'm I'm a little bit I'm a little worried. Mm-hmm. But my my hope of course is that more art spaces will become available that the the housing market which is starting to change will become more accessible um and that it that it can again become a center for creativity and a leader uh in in alternative and experimental thinking do i actually think that will happen i'm i'm on the fence are you going to stick it out for the I time don't, being i don't know okay. Honest, i honestly honestly i um i have been gearing up to move on for a long time. I always sort of have one foot out the door. Um, and uh, we were making plans to move to Portugal, actually, when the pandemic hit. And so I'm, I'm not sure now. Okay. Uh, if, it, if it gets cool again, maybe. <laughs> I've heard as far as the but, EU countries that Portugal is one of the easier, maybe shorter, like yeah. faster process. Exactly. And That's, it's also Portugal. Right. Well, that's I mean, that's one of the main reasons that we were that we've been looking at it is that it's one of the easier places for ex, to expatriate yeah. um, to well, my, my eye doctor was correct. She's <laughs> the one who told me that. <laughs> OK, cool. I, knew, yeah. I literally I like um, to know those things. Right. Right. Um, well, you know, it's been a plan for for a long time. Yeah. I, I, I did not mean to be living in San Francisco again as an adult. I mean, as I said, I've traveled quite a bit and and I've always wanted to settle in a different place. Mm -hmm. I just, I get so restless and somehow this is the easiest place for me to land even though my family is no longer here. The magnets. Huh? It's the magnets. It's the magnets. How do they work? That was Alia Voltz. On the next episode of Storied San Francisco, you'll get to know comedian Larry Dorsey Jr. Please join us next week. Music for the podcast was produced, performed, and curated by Otis McDonald. Original photography is by Michelle Kilfeather. Aaron Lim of Bitch Talk Podcast is our contributing producer. The show is produced and hosted by me, Jeff Hunt. Now in our fourth season, We have nearly 150 episodes available on our website, storiedsf.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you can, subscribe, rate, and review our show so that we can reach even more folks. And if you'd like to drop us an old-fashioned email, we'd love it. The address is storiedsf at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, stay strong, stay healthy, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is a proud member of the BFF.fm podcast network. Learn more at podcasts.bff.fm. BFF.fm, best frequencies forever.